Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have an impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose. Impact is where your unique best self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Linda Kohanov. Linda is the author of the best-selling book, The Tao of Equus. She speaks and teaches internationally. She established Epona Quest worldwide to explore the healing potential of working with horses and offer programs on everything from emotional and social intelligence, leadership, stress reduction, and parenting, to consensus building and mindfulness. She lives near Tucson, Arizona. So welcome to the podcast, Linda. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you, Ursula. I'm excited to be here. So I'm so been enjoying reading your book, and I would love to hear a little bit, just to give everybody a bit of a starting point. How did you come to be doing this work that you do with horses and corporations and individuals around the world now? Well, um, this is my fifth book, actually, The Five Roles of a Master Herder. And every time I write a book, it seems like I come across um, research that's surprising to me that leads me down unexpected paths. And this book is no different. But from the very beginning, working with horses was an unexpected path. I didn't grow up with horses. I loved horses like many young girls do, but my parents were afraid of them. And then when I was in my 30s, I was working in some rather high stress yet inspiring situations, um, working in communications in radio and as a music critic and dealing with a lot of huge egos of really famous musicians and <laughs> others who were in that field, putting on music festivals and things like that. And people were driving cr me crazy, to tell you the truth. I just <laughs> felt like I needed to get away from everyone just to calm down and to refresh myself. Um, and so I bought a horse with the goal of riding into the desert, just spending some time alone with a beautiful, powerful animal that um, I had the feeling was a very pure being and wouldn't give me any trouble. And what I found instead was that <laughs> the horse <laughs> would challenge me on all kinds of issues, um, especially related to, to leadership, because I had a number of positions where, you know, I was officially in charge, um, program director of a radio station or a music critic with multiple magazines where people wanted to get on my good side to get good reviews and things like that. So I didn't realize how much of my leadership and influence was related to my position until I worked with horses. And they don't care who you are, what your degree is, how expensive your cowboy boots are. What your title is. What your title is. Um, they are just, they're going to listen to you when you have real, authentic leadership presence. And they're going to challenge you along the way. And if you don't know what to do in response to those challenges, they weigh at least 10 times more than you do. And so in general, they get their way unless you really know what you're doing. Yeah, and I, I've spent a fair amount of time photographing horses, but they still kind of scare me, even though I've spent a fair amount of time with them. Is is that something that you come up against when people first 
come to with to work with you around the equine facilitated work? Yes, um, that's part of the reason why it's so efficient and so effective is that um, you know somebody who maybe is weighs 200 pounds and is kind of used to bullying their way around the office, all of a sudden they're up against someone who weighs, you know, a thousand pounds <laughs> and, and they have to really pay attention. Um, the, the horses I work with when I teach um, leadership and social intelligence skills through working with horses, um, these are specially trained horses that, that have an orientation toward people and a gift for challenging them with the appropriate amount um, of pressure while also be remaining safe. Um, these are we don't just throw people out with wild horses. That would be insane. And you would have good reason to be afraid. But these horses will still challenge people. Um, because really, you know, even among humans, psychologists have determined that only about 10% of our communication is verbal. And so that leaves 90% of the messages we're sending back and forth to each other in that nonverbal range. And when people talk about leadership presence, that's primarily a nonverbal phenomenon. And so the horses really challenge you to pay attention to the other 90% and realize that it's not just what you're saying, it's how you're saying it, it's your vocal tone, but it's also your body posture, it's how you're responding to another person. Um, and so there are huge numbers of elements that go into nonverbal communication that the horses are experts at teaching you. Well, it. It's so interesting in your book, The Five Roles of a Master Herder, that you really talk about how ancient herding cultures have learned to work with large animals in that setting and that, you know, this really translates well to leadership in our culture because, I mean, as entrepreneurs, most of my audience uh, is, entre they're entrepreneurs, you're, you're always dealing with this question of leadership. How can you be effective? How can you play the different roles that are necessary in order for you to be effective in different situations. Is there anything in particular that you think relates to being an entrepreneurial leader that, that might be different? And maybe you can talk about the five, uh, the five roles and, and um, then let us know if there's anything in particular we should look out for as entrepreneurs. I think as entrepreneurs, they're most likely to overemphasize what I would call the visionary leadership role. You have a vision and you want to bring it, you want to manifest it in the world. Um, and a lot of times leaders of that quality um, are incredible at inspiring others. Their ideas are brilliant. But then once they have to get a bunch of people helping them to manifest their vision, they're going to need some other skills. Um, and so this obsessively focusing on the vision and the mission is something I see a lot of times with entrepreneurs. And they don't have the capacity to um, delegate as effectively. When someone's resistant, they may not have the ability to really use power thoughtfully to push through resistance and then get somebody back on board and inspired. Um, they sometimes get too far out in front of others and need to come back around and explain and make sure everybody's on the same page and everybody gets the, the training they need to help fulfill the vision. And um, so the five rules of a master herder comes from this unexpected research I came across when I was writing my fourth book called The Power of the Herd a non-predatory approach to social intelligence, leadership, and innovation. And in that book, I was researching the history of leadership in multiple cultures and across time. 
And I found that nomadic pastoralists, these are tribes that migrate with large animals, were employing an amazing socially intelligent form of herd management that allowed these interspecies communities to move across vast landscapes. These people have to deal with predators and changing climates. They have to protect and nurture the group while keeping massive, gregarious, sometimes really aggressive horses and cattle together. And here's the key. They have to do all of this without the benefit of fences and with very little reliance on restraints. And that's the key that makes it similar to what all leaders are dealing with these days. People have more freedom than they've ever had before. They have more options than they ever had before. And um, so if you're just going to do some kind of command control leadership model and intimidate people and try to force them into situations, you're going to lose your most confident, enthusiastic, gifted employees who are likely to leave and uh, become your competition. So you have to understand how to work with really talented, vivacious people who are going to really help your company shine. You don't want to alienate them, but they also tend to go, kind of go off on their own and have their own opinion about things, and you have to learn how to bring them all together and get them back on track. Right. Well, and something you also talk about in the book um, is that millennials are, are even less interested in sort of being herded, being corralled in a way that is uh, in that command and control style. They'll, they'll just leave. So it's an important, these are important skills to master. Yes, very much so. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, when you're really looking at star performers, you know, these really talented people that can help your company shine, it's like wrangling a herd of feisty racehorses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can feed them well and you can condition them at a phenomenal level and then they're worth millions. But racehorses are aggressive and sometimes flighty and they don't necessarily get along with each other. And if they don't like the trainer, they might leap over the gate and head for the hills. And that's what we're dealing with, with millennials in particular, and with imaginative, confident, talented people also, regardless of when they were born. Well, one of the things that uh, I thought of as I was reading your book, one of the five roles is predator, which you know sounds kind of threatening when you first think about it, but you talk about it in terms of culling you talk about it more broadly in terms of culling uh, habits and things that we're doing that are no longer of service. And it's a role that I think uh, everyone kind of grapples with in that way because it's it's easy to kind of hang on to what's familiar. Yes. And, you know, humans are omnivores. We have the teeth more like a vegetarian and the eyes that we have looking forward are very much more like a predator. And we've developed tools that allow us to act in predatory ways if we want. Um, And a lot of people either completely avoid the predator role or they overuse it or use it unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we really need to do is I was so fascinated with these um, nomadic pastoralists is that they understand how to use the dominant role and the leader role, the nurture companion role and the sentinel role. Those are the other four roles. They know how to use all four of those roles without any predatory power whatsoever. And they save predatory power for culling um, to keep life in balance with available resources or to euthanize a a profoundly injured animal. Um, These cultures actually much less meat than we do. 
um, they mostly subsist on milk-related products. And they have to, if they acted like predators around the animals, unfenced animals would just run off. And so they actually have to bond with them and build trust and keep them together. But they have to stand up to really aggressive, dominant stallions and bulls in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, so you can almost think of a really advanced leader um, as somebody who's operating like an ecosystem. So that in an ecosystem, you have mostly animals that are not predatory and you have to keep the predator the predators in balance you can't let them run amok you can't let them racing across the landscape right. rapidly eating everything and you know there are some organizations that are run with a predatory orientation of power mm-hmm. and this these are these people can be highly destructive and lose huge amounts of money and lose really valuable staff members. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be using that role because when the economy changes, uh, you might have to decide that you're going to cull or cut some programs that you can't afford to keep any longer. Um, you're going to have to make some tough decisions to keep life in balance in your company. Um, and, Sometimes you might have to cull employees after you've worked with them a number of times using the other roles. If they are really not functioning in the way that you need them to, you have to let them go. And a lot of statistics show us that people tend to keep staff members around longer than they should when right. it really is time to call them. Yeah. So I think that's really an obstacle in for a lot of entrepreneurs where they, they become connected with someone because they love the vision that you have and yet they're not necessarily suited for what you need them to do. So taking on that predator role of of really helping your company thrive by having the right people there, it can be quite challenging. Yes, and it's it's actually um, sometimes you end up having to call somebody because you weren't willing to use the dominant role early enough, and um, but you have to use the dominant role in its non-predatory form, and that's one of the things that I really talk about in this book. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs um, will sort of abdicate the dominant role because it, if it's not used well, it can feel really harsh and intimidating. Um, and so they end up by not using the dominant role early enough, which which is a more assertive role that it gets very directive and has consequences for behavior. Um, and if it's used well, it's used it's it's can keep somebody on board who you might have to fire if you just let them get away with this bad behavior too long. Right, and it's uh, it's really the wielding of all five roles that are that is really going to help somebody be in balance as a leader. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yes. And you know, that's why I I was originally calling this book, the five roles of a masterful leader. And I realized that um, the leader role is only one of five roles. And I wanted to emphasize that. So I call this book, the five roles of a master herder. The word herder is um, actually interpreted in an inaccurate way in our culture for the most part. Um, a, A herder someone who's herding animals has to be a leader also has to be able to use the dominant role. And these herding cultures understand the difference between the leader and the dominant role. And in our culture, we often blur those two. Mm. They also understand how to, 
use the leader and the dominant roles in in their non-predatory forms, which a lot of people don't know how to do either. Mm. Um, but they also understand that the nurturer companion role and the sentinel roles are the two roles you're using most of the time. And so, you know, they they support the animals. They they help them give birth. They build trust. The animals want to stay with them. Um, and then they use the sentinel role to watch the group in relation to threats and opportunities in the environment. And a lot of times people, for some reason, forget to use the sentinel role and, or they rely on one or two people to do it. And you can really burn somebody out, um, by causing them to have to be in the sentinel role all the time. And so when somebody learns how to use all five of these roles as needed, um, they become truly masterful, um, master of their own power, first of all, and masterful in their use of all five of these roles to help individuals and the group really thrive. Well, uh, I really recommend that people read the book if you're interested in leadership. It's such a great study of how these roles are important and, and it kind of normalizes some behavior that you might really be put off by or that you yourself are reluctant to adopt. And it really, uh, it really helps people help me understand these are actually really important at different times and different situations. So, um, yeah, really encourage people to, to check out the book. Um, I'd love to get a little bit behind the scenes in your own business because that's always so valuable and insightful for people. And I'd love to hear how you feel that the impact of the work that you're doing is affecting your clients and the people you work with. So many people go to school for years and get advanced degrees um, or go to a lot of different trainings to learn the technical aspects of their field. But a lot of times we expect somebody to learn leadership and social intelligence skills accidentally. You know, that's crazy. It's like saying, oh, I think people should learn brain surgery experientially. <laughs> <you know? laughs> well, I think people feel like feel like leaders are born, not made. And in fact, it's that's not my experience. I'm curious what yours is. Yeah, what I've seen is that people can be talented in certain aspects of leadership, and then they tend to overemphasize those things that have given them initial success. But then when it comes to moving a company forward and dealing with unexpected challenges and changes in the market, if you don't have more advanced leadership skills, you can really, you know, your company can go under. Or you can lose millions of dollars. And, you know, a lot of times when I have these conversations, people bring up Steve Jobs and um, they talk about how successful he was, even though he was, you know, highly dominant and he, he tended to overemphasize the dominant, the predator and the leader roles. Mm -hmm. And even only using those three roles, he was using all three of them unconsciously and in an unconscious way. Well, not just unconsciously, but in a kind of knee jerk reaction way. And as a result, he lost millions of dollars for his company. He even got fired from his own company. Right. So looking at the waste of what we see with somebody who has an incredible vision like he has, when he didn't know how to use all five roles in their mature form, yeah, Apple's successful. I have a Mac. But the, the amount of waste that's unnecessary when people won't take the time to learn leadership skills that are socially intelligent is is massive 
in the world right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to hear about how this is really grounded in you in terms of your values, because it's my belief that impact is consciously or unconsciously a result of the things that you value, things that you hold as most important. Could you talk a little bit about things that you value that you feel are important for yourself personally and in your business? I am, I value most of all that everybody is empowered. Everybody I work with, that includes my horses as well as the people that I work with, that they're empowered and that there is a capacity for people to bring up new ideas and to trade leadership roles according to who's um, perhaps strongest or most well-educated in a certain area or has the best vision in the moment or is the calmest and clearest, clearest in a certain um, challenging situation. So I really believe that learning to share power is the challenge of the 21st century. And that's where I see a lot of people go awry. People are used to working in the dominant submission paradigm as much as they don't seem to like it. Once it comes time to learning how to share power, there can be a lot of confusion and a lot of weird little unconscious power plays that that can wreak havoc. And um, so my goal is to help companies empower everyone on their staff so that leaders don't have to constantly be the ones who are in that role, that everybody can take on a leadership role at times. And that inspires people and that makes them feel like they're invested mm -hmm. in the company. At the same time, we do have to pay attention to the vision and mission and keep everybody on track. And so you kind of have to mold and shape that power. Um, but I, I actually, early in my career, um, was running a large retreat center equestrian-based retreat center that taught this work. People were coming from all over the world and um, they had the best of intentions and they loved this idea of mutually empowering each other and socially intelligent leadership. And then they got out there and they would get stressed under different situations and they would fall back into all their old habits. And there was just like a lot of craziness around me. I was just like wandering around for years going, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> and then one day I started to ask a different question. I started to ask the question, how can we all get along? And I started to research and experiment and develop ways that we could get along and then in looking at this master herder model, I realized that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, that, you know, these herding cultures for thousands of years all over the world learned how to deal with free, empowered animals, keep them together and keep everyone safe and in a place of mutual respect. And when I started to translate those skills into purely human sessions or purely human um, situations... Um, my entire life changed and the life around me of everybody I was working with and who was working for me, all of our behavior seemed to uplift and all of the old things that used to wreak havoc just simply dissipated. It was like we, we suddenly knew what to do and we could see unproductive behavior coming a mile away and address it in a minor stage before it came upon us and was really wreaking havoc. Mm. And, um, so I can't say enough about having every single staff member and every single parent learn 
how to use, how and when to use all five of these roles because it's changed every situation I've been in where people have even just learned the information in two or three days in a workshop or in a day-long workshop or just by reading the book. At the very least, a lot of behavior that seems crazy, you just realize it's different instinctual styles of managing power. And different people overemphasize different roles, and they act out in predictable ways that you no longer have to take the dysfunctional behavior personally anymore. And that in itself is immensely freeing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a powerful realization that you had of, you know, how can we work together and and not taking it personally has become uh, such an important part of your work. You, you mentioned stress too. You said that people used to, uh, you, you know, you were in these situations where you would get completely stressed out. And I wonder if your, from your learning uh, with horses and whether there are ways of managing stress that you do that you've learned from them that you've brought in to your own personal practice. Oh, yes. There are all kinds of. Um Techniques that are initially counterintuitive, but you can actually um, turn um, an aggressive horse or an aggressive person around from attacking you to cooperating with you by doing some very simple nonverbal techniques where you're starting to use your body, um, your nervous system to calm another person or horse's nervous system. And you do it through vocal tone and breathing and a certain kind of um, ability to stay centered in the midst of others' fear and aggression. Um, and it, it feels at first like some kind of strange, um, almost magical series of techniques, but it's only because they're nonverbal. Um, and some of these techniques are best learned with horses because if you can stand up to a horse that's... Um, challenging your space and your authority and you can get that horse to give you space and cooperate and move with you and do what you ask in a cheerful way all of a sudden after doing that with someone who weighs a thousand pounds a 200 pound co-worker or boss <laughs> or you know your spouse or your child it's it's almost funny you know yeah. you're Doesn't just kind of like so, yeah not so intimidating <laughs> right and you're like yeah you know i've you know, you might be thinking you're intimidate me and intimidating me and throwing a tantrum, but I can tell you right now that you are not nearly as big of a deal as someone who weighs a, a thousand pounds who's pushing into my space. You're <laughs> right. just you're kind of funny, actually. Right. <laughs> and that feeling of of confidence and not being intimidated in itself will turn a situation around. So, a lot of times the shortcut for people is really coming out and working with the horses. And I've trained instructors on five continents as to how to do very specific, simple ground activities with horses for people who've never worked with horses before that really teach them these nonverbal skills very efficiently. Um, and it's fun for people. It really is fun. So, you know, one of one of my bigger clients is Raytheon Missile Systems here in Tucson, and they send engineers who are going through a leadership training program out to do the work with the horses in one day. And time and time again, these engineers are first of all like, what are we doing with horses? And then they come <laughs> out and do this day-long experience, and then they go back and they say, this truly was the most powerful thing they learned in their year-long training program. Wow. So, you know, 
it really is quite amazing. It's a deep experience that they can then, you can really feel it rather than just having an intellectual experience with it. Absolutely. And the horses show people what they're doing non-verbally that's ineffective. And then when they make a few shifts, the horse will immediately show, give them immediate positive feedback as to their effectiveness. So people, and, and the group will like watch each person go in with the horse and have the horse move around, um, the round pen freely and, and also walk with the person and, and have the person be the leader, but also have the person use an appropriate level of assertiveness in the use of the dominant role and making a connection with the horse where all these things have to come together. And people will laugh that they see the issue of the person come up in the round pen with the horse that everybody else on staff is dealing with, with that person back at the office. <laughs> and then they learn the things to do a little bit differently and they have that success. And then they remind each other of those new skills that they've learned when they go back to the office. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, speaking of, of ways that people respond to you and, and which can be problematic in, in the work setting, what are some, well, maybe you can share an example of what's an obstacle or barrier or problem that you have had in having the impact you want to have. How have you been able to work through that? Is that something that um, you bring these skills to bear on or are there other ways that you deal with that situation? I always think it's helpful for people to hear not this sort of smooth trajectory of, yes, everything was incredibly successful instantly and all was well. We, of course, all have challenges along the way. So it's helpful to hear your experience of, of that and how you've dealt with it. Well, one of the things that um, I would do would was that I would abdicate the dominant role because I had seen it so profoundly misused. Um, immature dominant horses or people um, tend to roll through intimidation and they can be inexplicably overly aggressive, um, but it's instinctual behavior. So um, when you when you work with dominant horses, um, one of the things that they'll do is they'll attack other herd members for little or no reason at all during the day, just, you know, for no apparent reason. And it has an effect that they find valuable. It causes everyone else to be a little bit on edge. And so the dominant will kind of like strut into the center of the herd and it parts like the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. And um, they achieve this by launching minor inexplicable attacks throughout the day for multiple herd members. And people do this too, dominant people. Their power plays are endless and they have incredible gifts if they can be channeled in the mature use of that role. Because if you're going to break up fights between people, you have to use the dominant role. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get a, re a resistant employee back on track, you have to use the dominant role. Um, and to understand when and how to use that power was a real revelation for me. Um, another thing that I learned was to use all five of the roles as what I call a crescendo. And a crescendo is a musical term that just means you start softly and you progressively get louder without getting softer. And so if you're going to use the five roles of a, as a crescendo with an employee, let's say you have an employee that is uh, 
not doing a part of their job that they they find boring. And this is this is a classic dilemma that entrepreneurs might have is that they attract people who are excited about a vision and then everybody has boring tedious parts of their jobs. Sure. And so you might have an employee that's just not getting on track with one the one thing that they hate to do the least, you know. And what happens if you don't get that person back on track as the leader? What effect does that have on your organization? Are, are you asking me? <laughs> I am. Yeah. yeah, I'm asking you a question. Yeah, it's uh, it can cause havoc. I mean, it really causes chaos because people then feel that they have to make adjustments or they, um, they're really looking to some leadership around that issue so that they can function effectively in that environment. Yes. And when somebody says that they're looking for leadership in that situation, what they're looking for is the leader to use the dominant role. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're looking for somebody to say to that person, yeah, you need to do this and to increase the influence until the person actually starts to do that. Because, you know, those who refuse to use the dominant role, um, others pick up the slack, then they become resentful and then others see that they you know, maybe they can get away with not doing the boring part of their job. I mean, it does create chaos after a while. But if you're going to use the five roles as a crescendo, um, what I would do is I would bring that errant employee in and have a conversation with them that starts out in the nurturer companion role, which is I'm going to find, I'm going to ask them what's going on in their life and in their job um, and find out if they need some additional training to do this part of their job or what kind of support do they need? Um, are they, are they having some problems in their personal life that's making it difficult for them? Um, if so, you know, maybe I need to give them a little time off or maybe I need to, um, have them move to a different department or, you know, just find out, I need to just find out what's going on and I need to be trustworthy enough to be able to have that kind of conversation with them where they're willing to admit, yeah, you know, I put this off and I put this off because frankly, you know, I'm actually not really good at this part of my job. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well then let me get you some training. Yeah. Um, And it's hard. It's a tough thing for people to admit. It is. So you have to have that trust built up with somebody and the trust and the connection is part of that nurture companion role. But it, it it still needs to be done in a professional way. I mean, you don't want to indulge them and tr- treat them mm-hmm. like a child. Right. But or, you have to be able to find out what's going on, and they have to trust you to do that. Mm-hmm. Or get into a therapy kind of situation. So, yeah. Which right. Is, yeah, you don't want to do that either. Right. But you can notice if somebody does need therapy and, re- and refer them to a therapist. Sure. I never engage as a therapist with my employees. But I have on occasion found that they have a personal issue, and then I've helped them and supported them, and then maybe even eventually crescendoed up to the point where I've required them to get some therapeutic help. Mm. But um, the second conversation that you would have would be more in the sentinel range. And so the sentinel role, I would be talking to this person about, you know, how their behavior impacts the, the rest of their team and how that team's inability to function due to their behavior is impacting the rest of the company and the mission and the vision of how we are serving our clients. So it's kind of like you're, you're starting with someone's individual behavior, but you're showing them how it affects the group and then the larger organization and the larger environment around them. Then I would go to having a, a leader conversation. Hmm. Um, 
which would be more like focusing once again on the vision and the mission and letting them look into the future and see that if they can move past this place of resistance, what are the future opportunities for them? And what are what is what would be the impact on our company and our ability to fulfill our vision if they can get back on track? So do you see how this is starting to crescendo up through the roles? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a kind of escalation in the sense of, you know, bringing more of what's going to be valuable at that point to bear as needed. Right. Yeah. And then finally, you know, if if that's not working, then you have to bring the dominant in. And the dominant is one that says, okay, we've I've told you why you need to do this, but you need to do it now. And there will be a, an increase of certain consequences for you not doing this part of your job. If you don't get this report to so-and-so by this date, this will be the consequence. And then you fulfill, you crescendo up by fulfilling that consequence immediately at the appropriate time. And you might crescendo up as the dominant, giving them a couple of different scenarios and consequences. And then the last thing the dominant does is tell that person that the predator's coming in next, <laughs> you know. So it's like, okay, by this date, if this isn't happening, you've experienced these three consequences. The next consequence is it will be time for you to go. And then you walk in at that point and you're not angry. They already know what's coming, you know, and you, you actually, um, you let them go and, and it's time and you've built up to it and you yourself don't have to feel bad about it because you've created the appropriate series of crescendoing consequences. Right. Well, and what strikes me about what you just shared, that that uh, crescendo is the clarity within the person who's doing it and also the clarity of communication, which I think really helps the other person to, in combination with the nonverbal cues, really get it. There's a multi-layered communication going on. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, the um, the thing that I tell people, because I myself was not so good at the dominant role, I, I didn't like it. Um, I tried to inspire people to follow me. I, I was more of a visionary leader type. Um, but some people just need to be pushed especially when they're, they've reached the edge of their comfort zone. They might need to be pushed out of it. And uh, so I let people know now that if I use the dominant role with you, it's because I care about you. It's because I want you to stay in this organization. If I didn't care about you, I don't like the dominant role. I would just go straight to the predator role. It's like, if you're not getting it, it's time for you to go get away. So if I'm, if I'm using the dominant role and I'm creating um, pressure and consequences, it's because I really care about you. And I hope you'll succeed. Yeah, and that's an important thing to communicate. Um, so we're we're going to wrap things up with uh, a new feature on the podcast, which I call the rapid round. And there's a couple of quick questions and then a final question that I have for you, Linda. The first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact, about making a positive contribution, making a difference? I've learned that I had to use power um, to make an impact. And I didn't like the word power. I know a lot of people don't. But when I was working with really aggressive horses um, that would be destroyed if I didn't help rehabilitate them, what I found was that kindness and sympathy and understanding weren't enough to heal that level of misused power, that I had to be powerful myself, but I had to be power 
helpful in a conscious, non-predatory way. Mm, that's great. What a great way to put it. Well, next quick question is, what is the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your impact the most? Learn how to take different forms of dysfunctional behavior in a non-personal way. So that now when, when people are acting out, I, I can actually, I, I'm not taking it personally. And I'm also recognizing a lot of times that their behavior is instinctual and unconscious and that together we can make it conscious and we can do something more productive. Mm, that's great. And then last, what's one piece of advice or insight that you would offer some, another business owner of saying, I want to have impact. I want to make a difference in the world in my own way. What would you say to them? I think that more than anything, to really have impact in multiple situations, um, you need emotional heroism and not just physical heroism, not the capacity to take risks and to, you know, step outside your comfort zone in a technical way, but to be emotionally heroic, to walk into situations where conflict occurs and have compassion for everybody, but also know that even when you don't know what to do next, just by being there and caring, um, despite the fact that people may be acting out, um, that is an act of heroism that is in some sense more important than um, any forms of physical heroism we see. I love that phrase, emotional heroism, and you've, you've described it in a way that's so powerful in being able to use our own ability to be present, to be uh, to ha kind of harness our behavior in an appropriate way that we're really going to address things. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today, Linda. I'm, I'm so appreciative of how you talked about not taking things personally, really seeing dysfunctional behavior in terms of uh, the five the five roles of a master herder, which is the title of your book, and um, really helping people uh, be empowered in whatever setting they're in. So thank you for being with us today and, and sharing your work. Thank you, Ursula. It's been a real pleasure. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, I have two websites. One of them is called masterherder.com. It's all lowercase, masterherder, as mashed together as one word. Um, and my other website is eponaquest.com. That's E-P as in Paul, O-N as in Nick, A-Q-U-E-S-T.com. Great. And that'll be on your uh, on the, the guest page of the website as well. So, Oh, great. And thank you uh, again for being with us, Linda, and for the work you do in the world. Thank you. And thank you, Ursula, for the work you're doing. It's, thank you. It's a wonderful show. Thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.